into the conviction that we want to end well. Give us wisdom. Many of us are very young. Don't know when our end is going to be, but it looks like it'll be a ways away. Give us the conviction today to live in light of eternity so that we can end well. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Number one, if you want to finish badly, if you want to finish your race in a terrible way, forget how you had success. Forget how you had success. This is point number one. This is in verses 1 through 21. It's a lengthy part of this account, so let's read it and we'll make comments as we go through. Verse 1, Then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, What is this thing that you've done? Not calling us when you went to fight against Midian. They contended with him vigorously. So, Apparently, Gideon did not tell Ephraim to fight against Midian. And Ephraim says, why didn't you tell us? We wanted to join the fight. We heard it was an amazing victory. We want a part of the piece of the action. We want some glory. This is just going to prove exactly why God did what he did in saying, let's make this the weakest army. Let's pare it down from 32,000 people to 300 people so that they won't boast. Because here's Ephraim saying, we wanted to be a part of it so we could boast. How is... Gideon going to answer. Verse 2, what I have done now in comparison, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? That's an Israeli proverb. That's a Hebrew proverb saying, Ephraim's awesome. Ephraim's awesome. Why did they need to be a part of this fight against Midian? You didn't need anything to be glorious. You're already glorious. That's what that's saying. It's a very diplomatic answer. Verse 3, and God's already given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. So what, have, what was I able to do in comparison with you? You actually got to kill the leaders of Midian. So you actually gained more glory than I received. Their anger then toward him subsided when he said that. Gideon is very diplomatic. He is using a proverb. He's very careful. Even though, unfortunately, he's now having to fight three battles, really. He, he had to fight against himself and what was going on. He had to fight against the Midianites, and now he has to fight against Israel. He has to fight against his own people who are going to start warring with him. But here, he's very gracious, very compassionate. He's not going to be this way in the next section. Then, verse 4, Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan. They're tired, they're worn out, they're weary, and they're pursuing the remainders of the armies of, Gideon, or of Midian. So they're going out and they're following And verse 5, he says to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they're weary. And I'm pursuing, these are the two leaders, the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmanah. These are the kings. I'm pursuing them to kill them. So please, just give us some bread. Give us some food. We're tired. We're hungry. Help us as we go. You don't have to fight with us. Just help us. And their answer is no. They say, verse 6, the leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah already in your hands? that we should give bread to your army. This is what they're saying. We're not going to help you until they're dead because what if we help you and you don't destroy them and they become stronger again and they come back this way and they find out that we helped you? They're going to kill us. We're going to be severely persecuted for it. So we're not going to help you. We don't want to get involved in this. We're terrified. We don't want to join. What does Gideon say now? Verse 7. I love this. I don't think that this phrase is anywhere else in the Bible. Gideon looks at him and goes, all right. I love that. Where, where else in the Bible do you see somebody go, all right? I mean, that's, that's not New American Standard Translation. And he just looks at him and goes, all right. 
But, and if we can paraphrase with my words, mark my words. When I defeat those two men, I'm coming back and I'm going to wreck you. That's what he's saying here. He says, I'm going to thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So he goes up from there to Penuel, verse 8. And he spoke similarly to them. Please help us. Give us food. And the men of Penuel answered similarly, just as Sukkot had answered. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, Okay, when I return safely, I'm going to tear down this tower. I'm going to destroy your city. Now, when Ziba and Zalmanah were in Kakor, their armies were with them, about 15,000 men. All of those left the entire army of the sons of these for the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. So Gideon went up by the way of those who had lived in the tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. And when Ziba and Zalmanah fled, verse 12, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmanah, and routed the entire army. Now, why is he doing this? If we're thinking Gideon in chapter 6 and 7, we're thinking he wants the glory of God to be won. He wants the glory of God to be seen. But now, we'll see later why he does exactly why he's doing this. So we're seeing a different Gideon. Verse 13, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herodes, and he captured a youth from Sukkot and questioned him. And the youth wrote down from the princes of Sukkot and its elders and 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkot and he said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmanah, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are their hands in your hands that we should give you bread and help you? He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of the Sukkot with them. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmanah, the two Midianite kings, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, and here's where we find out why Gideon's doing this. They were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you only had let them live, I would not kill you. But now I'm going to. So we find out that Gideon has changed. He's shifted from let's see the glory of God on display and let's drive out all of those people who are not worshiping God to now just this is simple revenge, straightforward bitterness against what these men had done to his brothers. And let's just be mindful of the fact that bitterness never works. Let's remember what bitterness is trying to do. Bitterness is trying to drink poison, hoping, hoping that it hurts the other person. That never works. If you're bitter at somebody, you're trying to drink poison, hoping that the other person might get injured. But that's never going to work. It only destroys you, and it's going to tear down Gideon. He hates these men so much that he decides that he wants to dishonor them. So, verse 20, he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. He says, why don't I have my son kill him? These two men will be killed by a youth. The youth doesn't want to do it. He did not draw a sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself, fall on us, for as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose, he killed Ziba and Zalmanah. He took the crescent ornaments, which were on their camel's necks, because who doesn't want a little camel bling? So Gideon, in revenge, because of what Ziba and Zalmanah have done to his brothers and to his family, goes after them and kills them. And he also destroys Sukkot and Penuel. This is a very different Gideon from what we previously seen. We saw a timid, shy, scaredy cat Gideon. And now we see a Gideon who says, all right, mark my words. I'm coming back for you. This is a different Gideon. What's 
changed here. We see that he feels that he ought to receive admiration from Sukkot and Penuel, honor for what he's done. He's expecting to be helped by them, and when they don't help him, he takes it personally. Now, what should he have done? What did Gideon do in chapter 7? If you're afraid, Penuel, Sukkot, if you're terrified, I get it because I am too. I'm scared of attacking those enemies of ours. I'm scared, but guess what? God's faithful. He's strong enough to win the day. Let's trust in him and let's not fear. That's what he should have said. What does he say? In essence, he says, no, no, no. You don't need to be afraid because look at what I've done. Look at how awesome I am. Look at the power I have. Instead of saying, look, God's powerful. He's got this. Gideon says, I'm going to show you that I am powerful when I get back. After defeating these two kings, I'm going to come back and I'm going to destroy you. Why? Why has he changed? Why has he become this way? I think we can just say it very simply in one, one word, success. He was incredibly successful in Judges chapter 7. And success can be very, very dangerous. Success can easily cause us to forget that God is the one who won the day because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves and win the day ourselves. We saw that in Gideon last week, and now we see that Gideon is not persevering in his weakness. When he was weak, when God helped him and became his strength, he bowed low and worshipped. And now what's going to happen is when he sees, I'm strong enough, I'm successful, and he forgets how he had success, he's going to ask others to bow down and worship him. Success can destroy us. Imagine somebody who works really, really hard at a job because they want to be successful. They, they see their success in relation to their pocketbooks and they want their finances to grow. What's the worst thing that can happen to them? What's the worst thing that can happen to them? And we would think, well, losing their job and losing their money, that's the worst thing that could happen to them. And we tend to think that because they'd be losing what they're trusting in. But in actuality, if they lost their job and their money, then they would be shown that those things cannot satisfy, those things can't save. The worst thing that can happen to somebody who wants to find their satisfaction, their hope and their strength in their job and in their finances is to become incredibly successful because then they think that what they believed about their finances, what they believed about their job and their successes is true, that it satisfies, that it brings you everything you want, everything you need. They will be more a slave to success than if they had failed. And Gideon didn't fail, and so he has become a slave to his own successes. Yes, you and I need to remember that we're saved by grace when we are struggling with our failures, but we need to remember it just as much when we are struggling through our successes. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by our successful times of victory. That's why we need Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So in our failings, in our sins, in our depravity, God's the one who gives us life. Amen and amen. But then verse 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he gave to us beforehand. He's the one who gives us the good works. So we need to understand God's the one who gives us grace to gain success in our failures and in our accomplishments. Others do this just like Gideon in the Bible. Solomon, when he becomes successful, because of the wisdom that God has given to him, he starts to bring in wives and bring in concubines and have all sorts of families, and starts worshiping idols. Rehoboam does this. I'm successful, and I'm going to be awesome, and so I'm going to just set up some idol worship, and I'm going to uh, 
uh, rule harder than my father did. King Asa, we've talked about him a number of times in our church. Just don't ever believe your press clippings. If somebody says you are amazing at what you do, just go, I'm not. God is. God's the one who's amazing. If you want to ruin your life, if you want to live in such a way that you finish terribly, go ahead and do it by forgetting the way that you were given success. Forget the way that you were given success. It's by God and by his grace alone. Now, that leads us to point number two. If you want to finish terribly, finish your race badly, number two, live hypocritically. Live hypocritically. This is in verse 22 through 26. Verses 22 through 26. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. Both you and your son, also your son's son, give us a lineage, a dynasty of kings, because you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. They see what Gideon has done, that not only has Gideon delivered them from Midian, but Gideon has also delivered them from Israelite people who were disobeying God, from Israelite people who were scared. We want a king who's not afraid to whoop up on the bad guys and the good guys when they're doing bad things. This guy's great. Let's make him our king. They say, we want you to be our king because you delivered us from the hand of Midian. What should Gideon's response have been? Clearly, it wasn't me who did that. I had 32,000 men. I thought with just 32,000, we would be in trouble. And then God pared it down to 300 guys. And all we did was stand there blowing trumpets and hit the, the bowls off of our uh, torches. That's all we did. God's the one who won this. But instead, Gideon says, yeah, I mean, I, I did that. That was me. He says, I won't be your king. Notice what he says. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And we stop there and we go, yes, yes, this is the right answer. Praise God. I, I think we see a turn. This was really bad when we saw... Israel fighting against Israel when Gideon was destroying some of his own countrymen. Okay, that was not good, but here, we're making a turn. This is good. But verse 24, yet, my Bible says, yet, though he said something good with his lips, he's going to live very differently than what he said. No, I'm not going to be your king, but then he's going to turn around and act like their king. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you, I would request, I'm not going to make a demand, but let me make a request of you, bring an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian. And besides the neckbands that were on the camels. Can't forget the camel bling. And Gideon is going to take that and do something terrible with it. But before we get to that in verse 27, we have Gideon saying with his lips, I will not rule over you as king. And then with his life, he says, but I want you to treat me as a king. I want you to give to me what you would give to a king who has conquered, who is victorious. 1,700 shekels of gold. That's 43 pounds of gold. That's over $600,000 worth of gold. Gideon says he's not going to be a king, but then he acts like a king. With his lips, he says no. With his life, he says yes. He begins the slippery slope of hypocrisy. And so here's my question to our hearts today. 
Are you the same person in the light that you are in the dark? Are you the same person in public that you are in private? Do you say certain things with your lips and act certain ways with your life that don't match those things that you would say? Now, all Christians know the struggle to make our practice as good as our theology. We all know that. But this morning, let's put it on the backdrop of what's happening with Gideon. Have you ever been in a place where you've become very successful and you forget that the success was given to you by God and you start to live differently? Remember, David did that, right? David, because of his success, says, you know, I can just sit and bask in the sun, get a suntan while everybody's off at war, and that's when he sees Bathsheba. In his laziness, in his pride, Gideon's going to say one thing, and he's going to live out a very different thing. So if you want to end badly, forget where the success came from. Forget that God's the one who gave you the success. Think that you are the reason for your successor. Number two, live hypocritically. Live with a hypocrisy in your heart. Say one thing, live a different way. Number three, live according to your own authority. Live according to your own authority. This is verses 27 through 29. This, is, this gets very scary in this text. Gideon took, verse 27, the gold and he made it into an ephod. Now an ephod is what the high priest would wear. It was the garment that would go over the high priest's clothing, and they would wear that as they went into the tabernacle. Here it's the tabernacle, soon it would be the temple. They would wear that. It had the, the 12 stones and the breastplate that corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. The priest was the representative, the, the great high priest, the representative, the only person who could wear this. And then on the ephod, you also had two stones called the Urim and the Thummim, and they were able to help you understand the will of God. It was kind of like you would ask a question and God would direct you somehow through those two stones. So this is the mediator between God and man. This is not a job for a king. This is a job for the high priest alone. The only person that could wear this and do this is the high priest. Remember the the fleece that Gideon made? He made a fleece to kind of say, God, could you help me? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Tell me that you're there. This is just the rich version version of the fleece. This is Gideon saying, I'm done with the little magic eight ball. Now I want to go to something better than that. I'm going to put on an ephod. I'm going to be the one who mediates. I'm going to be the one who dictates the will of God. With his words, he says, I'm not going to be your king but then he's going to live it out with his lifestyle. Well, you can treat me like a king. Give me, give me coins, give me gold like a king would get, and let me mediate for you. And look what he does with it. He places it in his city in Ophrah. Now, this is very bad because God determined the city that was supposed to house the tabernacle, the place of worshiping God. It was Shiloh, not Ophrah. But Gideon, because he's powerful and successful and he thinks he's awesome and he's full of it, says, you know what, we, we don't need to go to Shiloh. Just hang out in Ophrah. We'll have two worship places, one in Shiloh, one in Ophrah. Where do you want to go? All Israel decides we're going to hang out with Gideon. We'll go to Ophrah. And they played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. I don't know if you can hear in this. This is very similar to the golden calf issue. Remember Aaron? What did he say about the golden calf? He said, throw the gold into the fire and out pops this calf and this is the God that delivered you from Egypt. That's what Gideon's doing here. 
But it's very interesting because Gideon doesn't say, I'm not going to make a, a golden calf. I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. That's idol worship. I'm going to make God's chosen instrument of worship. I'm just going to put it on the wrong person, and I'm going to put it in the wrong place. So he doesn't make a golden calf. He makes an ephod. He makes God's designed way of worship through, through the high priest. But there's no high priest, and it's not in Shiloh. That teaches us something very interesting and very important to know. You can worship God in the wrong way. You can. Most people think, as long as my worship is being directed towards God, I'm good. But God has specifically demanded how he is to be worshipped. And if you choose to worship him in a way that he has commanded not to be worshipped, then no matter how authentic you are being, no matter how much you desire to be true in your heart, you are not worshipping God the way that he is designed to be worshipped. So, Gideon says, I'm not a king, but you can give me gold as if I were a king, and I will mediate over you as if I was your king. He's going to live according to his own authority. He's making his own rules. He wants people to come to him for guidance now. He wants to see the people to see his hometown as the place where God can be found. Just come hang out with me. I am the place where God can be found. I think we struggle with this, even in our own churches. Evangelicalism has always had a problem with this, but I think in recent years, more so than others, of wanting to dictate how God can be worshipped and heard. Gideon says, I'm going to make an ephod so that you can hear from God this way, because you don't want to have to go to Shiloh. You don't want to have to go through God's way of making his will known. Let's make a new way. Could it be that in churches... Instead of just simply taking this book and saying God has spoken and he's spoken clearly and let's study it for everything that it is and let's live according to it and let's let it direct our lives and let's obey it. Could it be that some people have put this down, closed this book and said, I want to hear a word from God. I want to hear God speak to me. And they're, they're playing a similar card that Gideon's playing. Uh, I'm asking God to speak. I'm asking the God of the Bible to speak. I'm asking Yahweh to speak but not in the way that he's already spoken. I want new revelation. We, we have these problems in our churches. We're going to have revival. I, I don't know who has a clock that says revival's happening now, but we, we can't determine when revival's going to happen. God's the one who makes revival happen. We can't determine when renewal happens. We've gone outside of the bounds of what God has dictated in the church to hear his voice, to hear his will, and to live according to it. That's, the Lord's Supper is God's version of renewal and rededication. That's what these elements are for. This is our time to say, remember the covenant, remember how we failed, remember how we messed up, remember how we have completely alienated ourselves from God, remember how we have been a part of this covenant and yet we still wander, and remember the covenant that God has made with us through the blood of Jesus Christ, that he and he alone holds us. Not our holding of him, it's his holding of us. That's what these elements are for. Gideon says, you know, I like what God has said and everything, but I, we need something different. May we never do that. May we never as a church do that. May we never, as preachers, as leaders, as elders, may we never say, you know what, what God has said is great, but we want something else. And of course, Gideon would never say those words. But with his life, he's living that out. One commentator says, we as a church and a culture have a passion for enriched extraordinary experiences while virtually ignoring the rich, normal means of grace that God has provided. Gideon does the same thing. Verse 28, so 
Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, if you're an underliner in your Bible, that is a verse worth underlining. And you look and you go, why? It's a normal verse. Midian subdued, and they have peace. Here's the reason why. Verse 28 in chapter 8 is the last time that we will ever see Israel at rest and at peace. We're never going to see them ever again in this book. And we have uh, lots more chapters to cover. We'll never see them again having that 40 years of rest, 40 years of peace, 20 years of peace, never again. They've lost it. And we've talked about this cycle that's gone through this book. But I think now is a good time to be reminded that if you abuse the privilege of God's grace, there is a promise in the Bible that one day that privilege will be removed. If you abuse the privilege of God's grace, there is a day that that privilege will be removed. Psalm 32 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. There is a day coming when he will not be able to be found. We don't know when that day is in our lifetime, and it may never be in our lifetime. I don't want to act that way and assume that God will just keep on giving grace. But we know that the day that we die, if we die in, ter- in determined disbelief, there's no way that we will find grace. Many are led into false worship, just like Gideon does with his people, by just one false step. Our sins, no matter how small, will always impact the people around us. And here they're given peace, but they're going to be moved into a period where they no longer have peace. So, If you want to finish badly, number one, just forget that God's the one who gave you the success. Think that you became successful on your own doing. Number two, live with hypocrisy. Number three, make up your own rules. Live according to your own authority. And number four, indulge your sinful desires. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, verse 29, went and lived in his own house. It kind of seems like a weird statement. Of course he went and lived in his own house. But what the author of Judges is saying is, Gideon wants his house to be the headquarters of all of Israel. Go to him to be directed. Go to him to find guidance. Go to him to have authority. Gideon had said, I'm not going to be your king. And then he acted like it by, number one, demanding gold. Number two, setting up this ephod. And number three, look at verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants because he had many wives. Now, I'm not an OBGYN, but I know that having 70 children is not possible in the way that God designed one man and one woman for one lifetime to be able to live together. Something's wrong with this picture in verse 30, and we're told what it is. He's acting like a king, not only with the gold, not only with the ephod, but now with many wives. That's what kings do. Just keep on getting wives for yourself. What's worse than having many wives? Is there anything worse? Yeah, sure there is. Verse 31, a concubine. Throw a concubine in the mix. She's in Shechem. She bears him a son. And Gideon names him Abimelech. Abimelech, all Hebrew words mean something. And Abimelech means something profound in this section. Abi, Avi in Hebrew means Uh, My father, Abba, father, Uh, the little I-E is the personal. Uh, My father, Avi, Abi. Melech means king. Avi, Melech means my my father's a king. 
My dad's a king. So Gideon says, I will not be your king. And then he names his son, my dad is king. What, what is he doing here? He has seen what a position of power and authority can give you, and he's loving it. And he decides, I'm just going to keep on indulging my sinful pleasures. Pride has destroyed him. Earthly, fleshly desires have destroyed him. Success has ruined him. Quite simply, he knew something intellectually alone that had not gripped his heart. That's why we want to go after the heart. Yes, you have to go after the head, but you have to go after the heart through the head. You have to go after the will and the affections of the hearers. So, Gideon, verse 32, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age, was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Then, verse 33, it came about as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. And the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. That's not that they didn't know who he was. They, cho- they chose to forget him. They still knew their catechisms. They knew all their Awana songs. They just chose, we're not going to let that grip our hearts in such a way that we live differently. And the Lord, who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side, they, f- they chose to not remember him. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. He had done good. He just let that good get to his head. If we ignore the instruments of God's grace and ignore the fact that God alone is the giver of the successes that we have, then we demean the giver of the grace entirely and we finish terribly. So, what about positively? If you want to end well, what should you do? Well, let's just flip them over. If you want to end well, understand and glory in grace. Stay humble in the successes that God has given to you. Realize that any good you have is because of God alone, and any bad you have is just because of you, right? We all have something to contribute to salvation. It's just our sin that made it necessary. So, understand and glory in grace. Number two, don't live hypocritically. Have integrity. Be the same person in the dark that you are in the light. Number three, submit to God's word. Let him be your authority. Don't be your own authority. Let God be your authority. And number four, deny yourself. Obey God. Deny yourself and obey God. So we come to the end of Gideon's life. What are we to do, especially as we think about the Lord's Supper, as we enter into a time where we contemplate the bread and the cup, How do we end these three chapters, this trilogy of Gideon's life? I'm going to just give you two points in conclusion. Number one, I want to plead with all of us, with every fiber of my being, let's finish well. Let's finish well. Let's work with everything that we have to finish well. We're all all on a trajectory, right? We're all going somewhere. We're all headed a certain place. And you can play out where you are right now, to what it's looking like as far as where you're going. Are you living these four ways that Gideon lives, or are you living the opposite? Let's finish well. It's possible. Let's not play the card that it's impossible. It's very hard, but it's possible. Paul, in 2 Timothy, uh, in his last letter, says, I have finished my course, and I've kept the faith. I've run the race to its completion. You can finish well. Don't let anything keep you from finishing well. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, 
Paul said before he was in jail in 2 Timothy about to die, in Acts 20, 24, in the middle of his ministry, he said, my goal is to finish the course and be faithful to the end. That's my goal. Make it your greatest ambition to finish well. Don't let anything keep you from finishing well. I, I think the hardest thing when we talk about how we are going to finish, the hardest thing in this equation is we all don't know when we're going to finish, right? We, we want to know how we're going to finish, but we don't know when the finish line's coming. So today, choose today to finish well. Look at the whole Bible. Look at all the people in the Bible. King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, even King Hezekiah. I mean, so many people just fizzle out. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. But let's listen to their testimony. One commentator says it this way. These people that fizzle out, that fail, they should temper our expectation of others, cushion our despair when others fail, and lift our gaze to Jesus, who never disappoints, never sins, and against whom no charges can ever be brought. So let me plead with us, let's finish well. Let's work as hard as we can to finish well. But if I said, and now let's pray, I would be a failure of a pastor. Because if I just told you, you know, we all need to live better. We would have no gospel. And you should not come to this church. I want to plead with you to finish well. Because I want to ask you to press through your own finishing to the one who already has finished well. And that's point number two in conclusion. Trust the one who finished perfectly. We read about him. We have a great high priest who ran his race in perfection, in completion, crossing the finish line perfectly. If Gideon, with all of his flaws and failings, can accomplish God's mission here on earth, what could a genuinely covenant-keeping man in whom there is no waywardness, no sin, no evil, no wickedness accomplished? The answer is found in Jesus. Jesus, unlike Gideon, had every right to demand that we serve him as king. Jesus, unlike Gideon, is our place of worship. He is the ephod of God. He is our tabernacle. He's our great high priest, as we read this morning. Yet Jesus on the earth resisted the temptation to rule in power and instead gave his life as a ransom for many. The book of Judges and the entire Bible as a whole cries out for the leadership of Jesus. Someone who is faithful in our place. What does Paul tell us? We, Though we are faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. Gideon is in Hebrews 11. This man who just fizzles out. This is just the worst way to end. He's in Hebrews 11. Why? Because Hebrews 11 is not the hall of fame of faithfulness. Hebrews 11 is the hall of fame of faith. Gideon trusted in the faithful one. And in Gideon's faithlessness, God was his faithfulness. Let's just be honest. Let's, let's just put it out there and admit it together with joy. We are all unfaithful followers of Jesus. We are. We are all unfaithful worshipers of God. And that's why we trust in, cry out to, and plead with and cling to the one who is our faithfulness. He himself, his faithfulness, as we sing, is our, our standing place. 
We have nowhere else to turn. You and I are not going to get to heaven because we finish well. We're going to get to heaven because God is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. So let's, let's finish well. Let's strive with every effort of our being to finish well. But let's always press through our own finishing to trust in the faithful one. Father, thank you for Jesus. It is his faithfulness that is our standing place. Though we fail, you will not fail us. Though we lose our grip on you, you never lose your grip on us. Though we let go, you cling tightly. And so we want to glory in you, our great high priest, our redeemer, our faithful one. We love you. We pray it in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men if they would come now and they're going to distribute these elements. We get to celebrate communion together this morning. These elements are for believers. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and he is your faithfulness, he is your standing place, these elements are for you. Hold them. We'll take them together. So just as they're passed by, uh, hold on to them and, and uh, we'll take them together when Sergio comes. If you are not a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. But I would just ask that you would let these elements go by until you know with confident assurance that Jesus died in your place and that you have trusted in his faithfulness. And while these elements are being passed, let's sing together of our Redeemer.